0: Hello, Secret Antenites. This is our last episode of Season 2. Thank you all for listening. And a special thanks to our Patreon subscribers. I wanted to let everyone know that between now and when we start recording for Season 3, Michelle and I are planning to use all of our Patreon funds to do a lot of behind the scenes upgrades to our gear and production and we can't wait to show you the results if you want to help us out while also getting access to our bonus content you can sign up for a dollar at patreon.com slash secret antenna and thank you all for supporting us just even by listening it's pretty cool thanks
1: With um, our second installment of the Occult Features of Anarchism by Ergo Lagalise, which also has a foreword by Barbara Ehrenreich, who's recently passed away. I actually think during in-between episodes, I think we lost Barbara Ehrenreich from Whoa. the
2: world.
1: Yeah. Isn't that wild? Magic. The foreword to this book might be one of the last things like Barbara Ehrenreich, you know, did. So that's kind of interesting. Um. Anyway, well, let's uh, let's dive in. Hopefully, everyone has listened to our first episode on this, and then in between, we did an episode um, with Ozone talking about Battle of Seattle, which goes along with both of these episodes on the cult features of anarchism, just in the sense that we are we've been doing a little bit of a primer on anarchistic action and theory recently so it goes it goes along with all that it's a great episode hopefully y'all have listened to that,
2: listening to that episode, Um because i couldn't be on it but it was just really cool and ozone is really cool i'm excited that he jumping in
1: i we got some good feedback on that episode too because this you know folks we're like, you know, this is a really great history of, you know, modern activism that's been kind of swept under the rug a little bit. And mm-hmm. I think that's true. So, um All right. Well, um, I'll go ahead and I'll go ahead and dive in and I'm just going to dive in. I'm not going to recap our first episode on this. Y'all should go listen to it. Listen to the first two episodes on this, because technically that Battle of Seattle episode goes with with this. Um, all right. So you have, I want to talk a little bit about the crusades and magic. So, cause you have this period of time, like when the crusades are happening, the Christian crusades, um, that's a lot of what they're, you know, against is they're going against, um, magic and magical practices, which the farther we go along into the story, we start to realize it was just this really normative part of society's act. At, at at those times So I'm going to read This is from Erica Lagalise I'm going to read a little bit from this Diverse mystical doctrines Began circulating in Europe during the Crusades Which is about 1100 BC Platonic philosophy Pythagorean geometry Islamic mathematics Such as algebra Jewish mystical text And hermetic treaties Were all rediscovered Quote unquote via Muslim Spain and translated into Latin during this time. It is well known that the creative recomposition of this ensemble inaugurated the Renaissance and later the Enlightenment. The Hermetica in particular is largely unrecognized as a font of modern left politics, yet is an important thread running through it. So let me tell you, let me talk a little bit about what the Hermetica is. Anybody who does... Anybody who does any kind of philosophy—I'm sorry, anybody who does any kind of (laughs) magic—the philosophers should know it a little bit better. But anybody who does any kind of magic has probably heard about Hermetics or um, anybody who messes around with tarot. That word probably comes up whether you know what it's about or you don't. The Hermetica, and I'm reading from Wikipedia right now, are texts attributed to the legendary Hellenistic figure Aramis and to the Egyptian god Toss. These texts may vary widely in content and purpose, but are usually subdivided into two main categories: the technical and the religio philosophical and I'm going to come back to that in a second. I did want to say here that at this time that the hermetica was coming out, you had other you had other texts you had the Jewish mysticism, you had these texts on revolution you had there was people were, there were more people writing texts at this time. So you had, there were many things that needed to be translated between languages. But what's interesting, and and Lagalice does mention this in this book, is that some places, like in some parts of the world, the Hermetica, which is a magical text, was being translated before Plato. Like, you know, like if you're a translator and you've got these things on your desk that you need to translate, you know, right? You're saying this is more important, and I need to like I need to translate this right now. So it was being put ahead of other. Was
2: it like a religious? Would you categorize it as like a religious text?
1: Well, it's interesting because it is. It's religious in the sense that it's magical and philosoph- philosophical, I guess. But it's it's also kind of winds up being the basis for modern science and which is also a philosophy. Modern science is a, is a philosophy. So let's get into the two parts of the Hermetica. So you have the first part, which is the technical part of the Hermetica, which are treaties or essays that are on, this is fascinating, astrology, medicine, pharmacology, alchemy, and magic. That's the technical aspect of the Hermetica. Cool. Cool, right? So it puts like, it puts all of these things together, things that we would separate at this point in time. Like we would separate medicine from magic, but they both actually, at least in the way that we understand them in the modern world, actually come from, uh, come from this text. Both of them do. You would separate astrology and pharmacology, but actually they were alongside each other. And the text that birthed them both. Um, I mean, <clears throat> I, that
2: makes sense to me, just knowing even about, like, agriculture and almanacs and using, like, mm-hmm. moon cycles and just an almanac in general. Like, is an almanac not, like, astrology and pharmacology together because you're growing herbs or yes. crops, you know, with knowing the moon
1: and the seasons and all that stuff? Yeah. I mean... Is it
2: today.
1: We use it today. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so the, and then, and then also the word alchemy. So the word alchemy itself is interesting because like, you know, we take the words, there's different ways to use that word in our modern language. And if I, I think we follow it back, technically, we think of these people, folks who were like trying to turn lead into gold, which I have my own thoughts on that. I think those are more like con artists who were using the greed of kings to, like, get paid, you know? Like, if you pay me in gold, I'll make you some gold. Because there were people who who said that they could turn lead into gold through this alchemical process, right? And they were being hired by kings who would pay them in gold to make gold. and And, the, and they would claim that, yes... I can make gold. I just can't seem to make very much of it, you know? And so I always thought, you know, my take on it is like, so you were taking gold from the king and then a week later, you'd show him the same gold and be like, look what I made. I'm going to need more gold. So (laughs) great. I think so too. I'm like, go for it. And like, if that isn't magic, I don't know what is, you know, like I see, I couldn't help but notice how greedy and self-centered and stupid you were. So I thought I would get something out of that for myself. I mean, that's magical, right? So, so that's kind of my thoughts on on alchemy in that way, but we can also use that word. The word alchemy can also be used in terms of bringing several elements together and and pulling them together. I like to use alchemy the concepts of of what, how I see alchemy when I'm doing Carol or I'm doing what Hordorowski would call psycho magic. And so that's when you're taking all of these different elements that are in play, already in play, like the elements of a person's psychology, the elements of a person's personality, the elements of a person's ancestors, the elements of, of me being present to witness all of these things in a person which changes that landscape for them anyway, just having an observer, having a witness, having somebody to comment on, on, on how all of this goes together for an individual person becomes a form of alchemy so that's that's the way that i think mm-hmm. we often use the word mo- in a modern sense and i think it's a more accurate term so alchemy just really has to do it's like chemistry it's like sex right it's like it's like there's like what's you know like what's working here and you know like what are we feeling here it's all it's all very it's all it's all that mixed together of stuff that makes magic i think so anyway this was the technical aspect of of the hermetica now the philosophical. Our religious aspect of the Hermetica focuses on the relationship between human beings and the cosmos Which is alchemical We could also maybe call the dialectic So let me just hit this real quick I don't, You know, like the dialectic may sound um, difficult to people and it's really not You
2: sound very smart right now I'm like, wow Michelle sounds so smart right now. I can't wait to learn more
1: about these words. You have the dialectic, which is actually very simple, and we all use it for everything, every day, all the time. It's just it's three parts, and I'm going to tell you the Marxian dialectic. Three parts. It's so easy. You have the thesis, the antithesis, and the synthesis. That's it. So, like, if you think about it like this, I think, I think romance is a good way to, to look at it. I mean, I just feel like people get romance and they get sex, right? So these can be ways to, to talk about...
2: Secret Antenna getting sexy today. Yeah,
1: we it. are getting sexy today, love- no doubt. I love it. <laughs> so, you know, when you meet someone that you like and you have this chemistry, yeah. you have this alchemical, you know, thing that happens, so there's you and there's the other person... And then there's the relationship. And so there's technically, you know, both of those things. So one of you, you know, you got you, you're the thesis, and you meet the others. The antithesis doesn't mean it's against you. It just means it isn't you. And then you create the synthesis between the two of you in this relationship. And so so there's really three elements at play there. That's I one love thing. that. It's
2: like we're all just having three ways all the time.
1: All the time. Like, like me, literally. the
2: person I'm having sex with, mm-hmm. and then the concept of us.
1: Having sex, it's actually just a three way. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> I mean, honestly, it is. And you know, like, and two, like, if you know, you know, other couples, which you do, you know, and, and, you know, if you know each person in that couple individually, and then you really have like three friendships. You have each person individually in that friendship, and then you have their relationship, which creates this whole other like chemical process that you're having a relationship with. So I think what? that's all. I'm that's so true. It's so true. And if you recognize that, it just, it, it, it stops problems from happening a lot of times or, or confusions from happening if you realize that you're like, you're not dealing with two people or two entities, you're dealing with three. And so that's, so that's the dialectic and we're doing that like all the time, like I say, with everything. Politics is made of the dialectic, agriculture is made of the dialectic, like we can go on and on. So that's the Marxian dialectic, which is outside of, it's a materialist dialectic, right? Because Marx was a materialist. So, but the dialectic itself, as far as I know, at least, uh, in terms of our modern canon, which we hit a little bit in the last episode, and I'll put up the Twin Rabbit, uh, podcast again on our social media, cause you all should listen to it. But everything that, uh, we are talking about today, at some point it hits this wall, in terms of how we see linear history, because history is not linear, and so many of all of the ideas that we're talking about today um, come out of indigenous cultures and were essentially appropriated a long time ago. When I'm talking today, I'm aware that uh, that that's that that's the reality, and we're gonna move forward in talking about history kind of in the way that we're all a little bit accustomed to talking about it. Um, but <clears throat> the dialectic then originally, quote unquote that's <laughs> what I'm getting at there, comes from good old like Hegel. So like so Hegel's dialectic was in the mind. And so I really want to bring this up since we hear so much from the right wing, from deep alt-right people who are saying, shrug, shrug, it's the Hegelian dialectic. You know, like that comes out a lot. It's just the Hegelian (laughs) dialectic. Yeah, that shrug, shrug, Hegelian dialectic. And they say that it's problem, reaction, solution. Now, I've thought about this a lot, honestly, and I was like, well, I guess. You can plug that into the Hegelian dialectic and it works, I guess. Um, It's not a particularly interesting way to use that dialectic, but I guess you could plug that problem reaction solution and, and, and that would be correct, I guess. Um, but dialectics in themselves <laughs> <laughs> so funny. Dialectics in themselves, they are a template into which you plug other things, like we just did with that Marxist dialectic, where you have the thesis, antithesis, synthesis. Like that's the template. And I plugged in a relationship. I plugged in a sexual relationship, right? And it works. And so, like, so you can so the Hegelian dialectic though is a conscious process and rather than a material process. So it happens in the mind. And his titles for it were in itself, of itself, for itself. And none of that really matters, honestly. It's a li- that's a little bit too like complicated for our purposes today, except that I want to divorce everyone's understanding of the Hegelian dialectic from this idiot problem reaction solution stuff of the alt-right. Like, the Hegelian dialectic, that is not it. Erica LaGalise, and um, she says this, The hermetic tradition beholds a unified universe of which man is a microcosm, as above, so below and wherein cosmic time beholds a pulsation of emanation and return. The hermetic cosmos is hierarchically arranged in symmetrical dyads and triads of hidden correspondences and forces cut across to unify at all levels. Humanity participates in the regeneration of cosmic unity in which our coming to consciousness of this divine rule is a crucial step. Now, that's all speaking also of a dialectic, in this sense, as above, so below, and then you add in human beings. And so we are, according to the Hermetica, we are in this dialectical process with the cosmos, and all parts are shaping all parts simultaneously. That's basically what that passage just meant. So the Hermetica deals with that that kind of processes, right? And they also, it's it's also the place where essentially our original scientific philosophy comes from. It's from the Hermetica. So it's interesting that these things all yeah, go together. Yeah, right, because I, I was like, right? oh,
2: that's interesting that that's the Hermetic triad or whatever, because I just remember learning about that, like, in science class. Yeah. Thesis, antithesis, and synthesis.
1: Yes. I mean, it's a huge, you can't do science without it, you know, and so, and it all goes back to these magical places. Um, So, this is a little bit more from her on the Hermetica. So, the Hermetica has proved adaptable to a variety of projects. It's neat metaphysical geometry, which arrived alongside algebra. Euclid's Elements of Geometry and the Pythagorean Theorem helped form a composite that lent itself to a massive investment in mathematical forms, and understanding mathematics became the hidden architecture of the cosmos. The most permanent and basic truth and revelation of these secrets certainly did permit an ability to build and create in ways never before imagined, providing both vaulted cathedrals, and calculus, for example, a variety of mystical doctrines proliferated from the interaction of the composite with pre-existing natural philosophy, alchemy being only the most famous. So what she's saying is that all of this came together really to create what we're doing now. And none of this would be really, We uh, so many of the things, medicine being one of the most particular, but uh, uh, so much of computer science, engineering, all of these things are really dependent on these magical histories in a big way. So that's what she's getting at here, which is why they were translating it ahead of why translators at the time were like, ooh, we got the Hermetica. Like, we need to translate that first. Yeah. And put that so anyway, ahead that is of the these other right texts that in our modern times, we want to forget all of this magic. We want to pretend like that's not where modernity comes from, that that was all of this... Um, this was this silly, benighted thing that people believed. It's such a... Like, There's just so, I mean, like so many, there's so much here that's important, but to cut off, you know, to cut off indigenous peoples, to cut off peoples who were practicing life outside of these huge political machines, anyone that was doing that. Like this is, this is cutting off magic and saying magic is dumb and science is important. Right? It's, God, magic is dumb. Yeah, magic's dumb. That's dumb. That's what dumb people do. And that's what peasants do. That's what tribal people right. do. That's what right. That's what all these dumb people do. And like we're the smart important people. You know, the capitalists, which it wasn't that word at the time, but it was the precursors to that, to capitalism. Um, we are the ones doing all the smart things. It's just such a capture technique. To 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 denigrate magic in this way—that's that's Mm -hmm. that's the way I would look at it. All right, so and I guess like
2: to just talk about why that is important. It's like even just in like Roe versus Wade time, or like this recent Roe versus Wade bullshit, where like abortion access got taken away, and then it's like, oh shit, there used to be like witches who would do this, right? Like where are they now? Like, there's some out there, but even, like, on Instagram, there was so many, like, infographics that were being spread around by, like, quote-unquote witches of Mm -hmm. herbs to take for abortion that actually was, like, not safe. So, it's just, like, it creates danger everywhere. And, like, even there's so much dioraspa or rick. There's so much aspects of People losing their connection to like magic and medicine—that's mm-hmm. part of like diaspora. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, it's just fucked up.
1: Yeah, I mean you're right. You're absolutely right about all all everything you just said, and and like the fact that like ah, there's like this there's another dialectic at play because like you know once you get the synthesis, the synthesis becomes um, the thesis. And it starts all over again. That's why it's a process, right? And so what you're saying where you have witches now, Instagram witches, who are like, just take these herbs. And you're like, oh, my God, don't take those. Like, you'll die. You're going to, like,
2: literally die.
1: You're going to literally die. Like, this is so dangerous. Um, that becomes then this way to say like, see, all of this stuff is like really like you, nobody knows what they're doing. This is all bullshit. This is all really dangerous. It becomes this whole other dialectical pro, um, process of why witches shouldn't exist. When the when the real problem is what you just mentioned is that you have this diaspora that like that like yanked. Practitioners away from their practices for long enough that their practices are dead, I guess, quote unquote, or, you know, their practices, they lost the chain. It's so
2: hard to, that, it's that. They lost the chain. Yeah. That's inaccessible now, but it's like, it's just so 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 difficult, and like I, I just hope, and I like can't believe that like any of those chains would be fully broken.
1: Right. I mean, not, right.
2: I mean, I I hope, you know, but like the, it might be, I don't know. I mean, there's certain things like I know we've talked maybe not on this podcast, but a lot in general about like druids and how druid druidic Mm -hmm. people never wrote anything down and like that is broken like you really like that is broken to me from what I've tried to do like to research and connect to like long ago Irish heritage or whatever like that it. it's over but other traditions seemed like they had better ways of passing things on even if it wasn't writing it down but like really just because of Colonizing, like Mm -hmm. these these chains have been broken. Definitely, if you're not writing shit down through it, (laughs) right?
1: Yeah, I mean, right. And and there's. I mean, we know from our indigenous friends that they are, you know, working, you know, they do working languages that are sometimes referred to as dead. And they're like, the they're not, though. They're still here and we can learn them. And so, like, that's, things like that are happening. And I think that that we can, you know, people are doing that with medicines also, too. There are people out there who can give you a, a good recipe for for safer, you know, herbal abortions. Like those people do exist. Um, just, you know, be careful with Instagram.
2: Yeah.
1: <laughs> Infographics. Yeah. So I, I agree with you. It's not dead isn't the right word, but it's certainly it's something to be grieved and to be thought about the way these chains have been broken and some things are gone. And like we even still just the fact that we know about Druids at all is kind of amazing and has to indicate to us. That there's so many things that, that there has to be at least some things that did get lost totally. People's and, and, and beliefs that got lost totally. Like that has to be yeah. real, you know, since, I mean, Druids yeah. is kind of a good example of like, well, we actually know they existed, but we know very little about them in so many ways. So yeah. Right. And I'm sure there's
2: so many more examples. That's just the one that I know of because right. I've
1: specifically tried to look into it because I'm Irish. Right. No, that's, a, I mean, it's a big one. That's a big one. Um, and it's one, like I say, we know the word, so we know that there's something missing, right? <laughs> but, but there's gotta be places where we don't know the word, so we don't even know what's missing. And that's what this is like. That's what colonization is all about. I mean, you know, I mean, at least, I mean, it's at least part of the dialectic of colonization right there is the, is these great Absolutely. forgetting. right?
2: Oh, that's uh, a great forgetting.
1: Not that the great forgetting. But you know, we're all still here and we're still talking about these things and you and I are certainly not the only ones. So uh, um so. Right, so magic. So along comes along comes the enlightenment. Quote unquote. Uh, which is happening near it's late seventeenth century, and they're using the Hermetica quite a bit. Hermetica's been translated now into several languages and that for the and this is enlightenment kind of yeah, roots in France, you know, for the most part, the concept of it, at least um at least in the beginning. It, it spreads throughout Europe, this quote unquote enlightenment. And there's lots of problems with this calling it this. You know, that we have already touched on. Um, but these ideas that were used during the enlightenment, our mainstream history will tell you they were new ideas. They were not. They were just ideas that had moved from one continent to another, from one peoples, um, to another, honestly. Ooh, and I again, right. Go back to our first episode and also listen to that podcast I'm going to put up. Um, but. So the Enlightenment itself I is a, feel bit like, of a misnomer. I'm sorry, not to interrupt. But I
2: feel like that's like we also talked about in the Dawn of Everything
1: episode. We did, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um But the Enlightenment is kind of a misnomer in that way. Like the like we, you know, like it wasn't like the idea was that like oh everything had been so dark and everybody had been so dumb, and then like we brought this light, and it was like. You know, made by Plato and these Greeks and, you know, all of this and like, and then we became smart and had reason and, and all of that. And that's just not true. That's just not how that worked. Like, like human beings didn't like wake up one day from the dark ages or whatever and start a revolution. That's just not what happened. Uh, people were, Probably uh, a lot wiser and more (laughs) connected, you know. Before before that, so anyway, we did touch on that before. But so the quote unquote enlightenment is happening, and it's based a lot in in magic, which is like our modern understanding of that is the opposite. Like the enlightenment was the cure to magic, but that's not true. So I'm going to read a little bit more from Erica Lagalice on. This enlightenment element. So the disenchantment, quote unquote, we often hear about in relation to the European enlightenment is but a tale. During this time, magic was not in fact disqualified, but rather came to enjoy an increasingly acceptable, even revered status due to connected advances in mathematics and related practical pursuits. Whereas during the Middle Ages, man's wish to operate on the world, as opposed to engaging purely in contemplation, was attributed to devilish inspiration. Within the Hermetic tradition of the Renaissance, a man's desire to operate on the world was eventually granted as Christian duty. In retrospect, the European historian has enjoyed categorizing certain forms of worldly operations as magical and others as scientific. So, which we kind of already touched on that. We'd already kind of talked about how we want to separate those two things. So, this gets really... Important in terms of like class and gender, which we're going to get to here very specifically. I think something that's funny here is that at some point in time, um, there was a reference to the mechanics of pulleys. Someone had referenced, uh, had said the uh, had said of pulleys, like pulley systems. You know, rope and right. pulley systems. Right. Had called it real artificial magic. If observers, are inclined, I know. if observers are now inclined to separate out calculus from magic, it's only because we have defined magic in retrospect as activity that is useless, unfounded, and misguided, whereas pulleys are real artificial magic. And I just, I love that idea.
2: I love it. <laughs> I know. I wish I. Could. It, I'm sure there's so many other things that fall into that category as well.
1: I bet there are Pulleys are Really magical Like that's something I can remember Just like for myself Like Oh gears Gears Yeah
2: Fucking watches Oh
1: gears Watches
2: Those complicated watches With all those gears Magic
1: you know, engineering, we call it engineering, but, but they really are pretty miraculous and, and physics itself, you know, when people say, well, that's just science. I'm like, it's pretty cool though, isn't it? Like you're talking about it. Like it's nothing, but it all seems like pretty magical and amazing to me. So taking this yeah. amazement out of things is a really, was a really weird thing to do in my opinion. Like, why would human beings do that to themselves? Haters. Haters. selfie, hater <laughs> <laughs> Truly. I mean, really I mean, and truly.
2: I think there's, like, a lot of reasons why people cut themselves off from spirituality, from philosophy. It's so much easier <laughs> to just go with the flow of this horrible death cult that we're in, you know? Like it is very obviously like God, my life would be so much fucking easier if I was just like a pumpkin spice I mean, I love pumpkin spice lattes. Why am I using that as an example of a fucking (laughs) horrible example because I'm currently a pumpkin spice bitch. But like, you know, if I just was fine (laughs) working a normal job, not being creative, not doing projects, you know, like that would be, that would be a lot easier. (laughs) And over time it becomes just the norm.
1: Yeah. And I mean, I think people get, get, get sucked into it. Sometimes some highly creative, highly intelligent people really get sucked in. I mean, for survival, my own practice, um, as a tarot card reader and as someone who, you know, does consultations with people just kind of in general, I see, I talk to lots of people who don't understand what's wrong with how they feel. And oftentimes I'm like, you know, it's because like you're so truncated in your ability to use your inherent cosmically given creativity and intelligence. And it's, and you're like really suffering like extraordinary um psychological anguish, like anguish from not getting to like exercise those things, and so I oh. see that right in you, yet at the same time like i i I don't have that problem, but I live on the margins of society, so like like it's one or the other for a lot of us. Not all of us. Some people get born into families that have a little bit of affluence and sense at the same time. And those folks are able to like engage many aspects of themselves safely and not have to live on the margins. But they but would they would throw
2: all of us under the bus to keep their wealth. So. <laughs> I mean, they would. Thanks.
1: No, they they would, because I think if there's anything magical in this world, it's these magic beings we call money, and they will mesmerize yeah. you, and they will, like, and and I don't think that I'm outside of that. I don't know what would happen if you dropped a million dollars on me. I really don't know, honestly. You know? Oh, my God.
2: Let's be honest. Fan. Well, first <laughs> of all, you would definitely get... A fucking pricked out RV. Like I I would you would be buying some <laughs> crazy RV and you would just be toot toot and across <laughs> the south.
1: You're right. I'd probably buy three of them and put other people in them and I would get my whole body tattooed. <laughs>
2: yeah. And also I know like you would give a lot of it away. You would probably give almost all of it away. You'd buy like one whole might... cool thing for yourself and then just be like, Okay, here you go.
1: I might I mean i'd like I hope so. I like to think so. I'd like to try it if there's anyone listening out there who'd like to see what happens if I get a million dollars um hit me up, see what I happens. I mean, it just
2: brings like that bring back to um. Did we talk about KLF as a public thing or was that like a Patreon episode? It was a
1: Patreon thing, but everyone should pay a dollar just for one month to listen to us talk about KLF. That was cool as shit. I guess
2: like the, yeah, the highlight of it to me was like they burn a million pounds or whatever. Yeah. And everybody (laughs) like, by that point, it was like they had already almost like cried wolf too many times and like nobody really Mm. cared. But that That's was like the crazy. coolest fucking thing in the world to me. Like I, I think it's very, very, very
1: cool that they did that. So, but meanwhile, all along the way, with the philosophies, as we're talking about the Enlightenment here, philosophies and other scientists are doing the same forms of magic throughout this time that witches were doing. And so we're going to segue into this a little bit. So here's uh, Erica Lagalice on from this book. Here's what she says. At this juncture, we do well to begin considering the question of gender in relation to the public sphere and worldly operation, broadly speaking. After all, as magic itself was gaining respect in certain elite quarters, women were being persecuted as witches precisely for practicing magic, wherein we may observe that the perceived danger was not magic itself, but the gender of its practitioner. While men's operation on the world was sanctioned, women's equivalent operation, and operation is in quotes in both cases, was increasingly targeted as heresy. As Barbara Ehrenreich and Deidre English first pointed out in their feminist reappraisal of the witch hunt, witches were generally no more than lay healers, wise women, and midwives, indeed proper empiricists who had developed an extensive understanding of bones and muscles, herbs and drugs, while those who have gone down in history as the fathers of science were still trying to turn lead into gold. More than a persecution of magic, broadly put, the witch hunts were a gendered class war, wherein elite males forcibly took over both the conceptual and practical realm of healing from peasant women, as the fifteenth century explains if a woman dare to cure without having studied she is a witch and must die, so much goes into what I just read, you know, and for example, I mean, like I'm just gonna i'm gonna purge or push very forward ahead into where we are right now and to consider how it is that we can anticipate that anyone will enjoy health. In a capitalist world where sickness turns profit, you cannot, you cannot, we cannot expect to experience health in this system because this, because it pays out these magic beans right into this magic capture zone um, for us to be sick. And that's, that's how capitalism works. So that was another reason to take out these people who were among the people. I mean, they say peasants, but what does that mean? It just means people. (laughs) So you remove the art, you remove the healer from the people, and you situate them behind walls through which you need a magic password to get in. You need a handful of magic beans to get in. However you want to look at it, they're walling off what is essentially just human life, which is making art and making magic and making healing. I want to also jump into, I want to read a little passage from, uh, Caliban and the Witch, which is by, uh, Sylvia Federici, which you and I will get to eventually. I know after this we're gonna, we're gonna skip into, we're gonna be, ooh, starting season three of Secret Antenna, which is gonna be rad. And we're gonna kick it off with some Dave McGowan. We're gonna return to the canyon. Um, but we will eventually do Caliban and the Witch. And so that'll be that'll be fun. So let we have me really, so
2: much on our to do list. So.
1: We do, we really do. Secret antenna has a bunch of cool stuff coming up ahead. So, um, but let me let me read part of this. Okay, so this is actually from Caliban and the Witch. So this is Sylvia Federici, and um, she says. Um, Sixteen female doctors, among them several Jewish women, specialized in surgery or eye therapy, were hired in the 14th century. Now, this is this is predating the Enlightenment, okay, uh, by the municipality of Frankfurt, which, like other city administrations, offered its population a system of public health care. Female doctors, as well as midwives, are sage-femmes. Were dominant in obstetrics, either in the pay of city government or supporting themselves with the compensation they received from their patients. After the Caesarean cut was introduced in the 13th century, female obstetrics were the only ones who practiced it. As women gained more autonomy, their presence in social life began to be recorded more frequently in the sermons of the priests who scolded their indiscipline, in the records of the tribunals where they went to denounce those who abused them, in the city ordinances regulating prostitution, and above all, in the new popular movements, especially that of the heretics. We will see later the role that women played in the heretic movements here. Suffice it to say that in response to the new female independence, we see the beginning of a misogynist backlash. I mean, I think this is fascinating. These were, I mean, like, in our, in our, in our contemporary way of, of viewing history, just even just our, our assumptions, let's even just say that, just our daily assumptions is like, well, women were never allowed to be doctors. It was like white American women in the 1960s that like started to make that happen, right? You know, like they were never allowed, women were never allowed to do these things. That's just how it's always that's, been. Yeah, that's so crazy. It's so crazy when here you have it. They were surgeons pre enlightenment. You have yeah, women doing the section
2: was like 13th century. Is like yeah. that's mind blowing to me.
1: Right, and it was done by women and strictly by women. So no boys allowed. No boys allowed. And the way that they were being paid, it says here, some, some were being supported by city governments and some were supporting themselves through being paid by their clients. I mean, this idea that healthcare would not be for profit is so, you know, like in our kind of modern American time, we're like, well, then we wouldn't have any medicine. Well, obviously that's not true. People have done this throughout time. People's
2: fucking logic that so many things wouldn't exist without capitalism. (laughs) <laughs> it's so stupid. I like, know. The idea that people would only do things because they get paid for them. It's like, then what would you fucking do all day, bitch? What would you do all day? <laughs> what would you do all day? There's 24 right. hours in a day. You could only sleep for like six to eight of them unless you're like hungover. Then maybe you get 10, 12. Like, what are you fucking doing all day? Are you? And like, thing? So, so you're saying you're gonna fucking sit around and do nothing all day? That's not what I'm doing.
1: I know. And also like, okay, but except there wouldn't be any beer because according to you, nobody'd make it unless they got paid. There wouldn't be no TV to watch because apparently nobody'd make it unless they got paid. I mean, that's what you're saying. So really what are familiar, you going to yeah. do? Like you just sit there. Uh, so this is a little bit more from one more paragraph from Federici. She says, um, heresy was the equivalent of liberation theology for the med- medieval proletariat. It gave a frame to people's demands for spiritual renewal and social justice, challenging both the church and secular authority by appeal to a higher truth. It denounced social hierarchies, private property, and the accumulation of wealth. And it disseminated among the people a new revolutionary concept of society that for the first time in the middle ages redefined every aspect of daily life, work, property, sexual reproduction, and the position of women, positioning the question of emancipation in truly universal terms. So this was going on wanting to be in Europe, wanting to be liberated from what was happening with taxation and kings and the, and the, this type of capture. Right. And this is really, you know, this is happening. What Federici is talking about is happening prior to, um, to whatever, whatever we want to call that situation with, you know, Columbus coming to the, you know, turtle Island or whatever. Like this is predating that. Right. So there were people trying to run from Europe to really very specifically come live with the peoples of Turtle Island, like really specifically, they were trying to run away from that. Some people were, but obviously their, um, their bad habits followed them. And here we are. Um, (laughs) Um, All right. So we're going to skip back a little bit. I would, this, this is, this is not an aside. This goes right in there. And this is like, you have all these folks coming back now we're moving back up into the seventeenth century, and you've got um these philosophers you've got the enlightenment coming you've got these dudes you've got these European dudes um trying to do the revolutionary thing right and so one of the things that that they're that they're doing and it's like <sighs> This is more important than it may sound at the very, at the very onset, but they're doing this thing that's part of magic that's called mnemonics and which has to do with something called the art of memory. And so a mnemonic is a device, is a device such as a pattern of letters, ideas, or associates, uh, that assist in you in remembering something. So anybody who, like myself, Like, you know, like when I was in, when I was in college, like anytime, you know, I was listening to a lecture, I was making, I was doodling, you know, I was covering, you know, like a lot of times you can see all these doodles around my notes, you know, and I'd cover and I, you know, lots of people do this, but as I would go back to like study for the test, first of all, anybody like looking at something in your own handwriting is going to help you remember it. So that's true for everyone. It's especially true for anyone who has dyslexia, any kind of neurodivergence, like looking at something in your own handwriting is going to really help you to understand it and learn it. And you could also do this with the little doodles you put around your notes. And so when I would go back uh... and study for tests, right, I would read my notes, but a lot of times, um, which would be covered in these doodles that I did, right? And so then when I would go back and I would have the memory of it, I would actually see what I had drawn on the page. So this is my closest connection to what like a mnemonic, how a mnemonic might function. Well, I shouldn't say that because tarot cards are also a type of mnemonic oh,
2: yeah. um
1: device, right? So I do have some I do have some uh personal contact with mnemonics, and so does everyone. So I would encourage you to like really think about how pictures and images and but maybe especially things that you do with your own hand really contribute to your ability to remember things. And so when it came to mnemonics, um, it's about associating parts of speech with mental images. And sometimes these were imprinted into architecture, both natural and man-made, which I think is interesting. And the practice was intended to allow for the recall of complicated sets of traditions. It's essentially a memory trigger system. So there could be a way to, like, look, I mean, hieroglyphics were probably this. So, you know, in, like, like what we call, quote-unquote, cave paintings, you know, and it's like, look, he knew what a dog was, you know, and it's like, no shit he did, you know.
2: <laughs> um, but <laughs>
1: Like, I can't believe it. They knew things, you know. Um, but probably also there's a very good chance that to these, quote-unquote, cave paintings, um weren't just like you know like i saw a bear let me draw it on the wall like it probably very much had um more to it a deeper story some type of science some type of recipe some type of medicine some type of warning right there was probably more in these in these in these artworks right than um than simply what we think of today we might literally be more ignorant than human beings have ever been. <laughs> the more oh, the I would people...
2: believe that in a second.
1: <laughs> the deeper we go on this stuff. I'm like, we are so stupid, you know, collectively.
2: Um
1: so um
2: I, that's definitely a <laughs> damn sure. There's no way the smartest human being who ever existed is Elon Musk. And I think <laughs> genuinely people believe that can't isn't that fucking disgusting? Thing, that it's people just, actually believe yeah. that this man is baseline smart. And then second of all, like, the smartest dude ever. Oh, my God. Oh, my it's,
1: God. It's overwhelming. It makes me feel I, fucking crazy. It just shows you how, like, how powerful propaganda is. Propaganda and belonging. These are the two things that really... You know, like our need to belong. People feel really comfortable being like Elon Musk's really smart, and we need a guy like that. And like they feel like they're in really good company, you know. And they feel like other smart people agree with them, right? But Elon Musk has uh, had some really, uh, really great propaganda that he was able to afford, you know, with his blood money, whatever.
2: With his fucking literal part, literal blood money, diamond movie money. I,
1: I just can't believe that man goes anywhere and like blood just isn't just dripping off him like all the time. Like that's it's probably it. Well, that, that you make a,
2: don't make him sound cool now. <laughs> <laughs> don't go on and make him sound fucking cool. No, you're you have a good point. You have a good point. Very dare you.
1: You make a very good point. <sighs> um. So what they're doing with the mnemonics is, so this is done throughout cultures worldwide. And it's how, like I'm saying, it's, it's how human minds like actually work. And so this technique of the mnemonic, it's not limited to Greek and European philosophies because literally nothing is. Um, but the practice through this lineage of thinking falls into a category of magic. Okay, so that gets interesting. Also, these mnemonics are considered, um, you know, as a big part of magic. But if you think about it, if you know anything about just even modern occultism, which this is, I mean, this is well, I don't know if it predates occultism. Go for it. I don't know what that means. But but just a modern occult practices. If you know anybody who does it for real, like from the book, like. That's intense. Like, there's a lot to do and to learn, and there's a lot in these ceremonies um, that can be very specific. Like, occultism isn't, like, free-form witchcraft. It's not, like, New Age. It's, you know, like, they have these long-standing traditions and ceremonies that are done a very specific way. So if you think back to a time period when people were doing this, and they didn't have Paper and pen really were not readily available until like really recently, honestly, um, in our history. So remember, you know, so just like jotting things down wasn't really something people would be doing. Oh, here, let me let me write that down and give you this piece of paper with my good ink on it, my good piece of paper and my good ink. You know, like that stuff was um, hard to come by. Uh, and many people also did not actually know those symbols, which in a, of themselves are a system of mnemonics, right? So not everybody, you know, we say they weren't literate, but that just always sounds like um, like a dig when it doesn't really need to be because they were using different forms, right? So, but anyway, like if you weren't really able to write down these notes or or you weren't sharing them with somebody who would understand those notes anyway mnemonics was a way to pass on the memory of very detailed ceremonies and very detailed histories and very detailed um, science methods, scientific methods, to people to remember uh, without all of those notes. And I, I think that's very fascinating. Um, so th- So those who were at this time persecuting witches for practicing witchcraft were, in fact, doing the exact same thing. Like, the men who come in to persecute all of these witches and drown them and burn them, for Christ's sakes, um, they're doing exactly the same things. So, Rene Descartes is credited with inventing the ex-credited. Okay, (laughs) we've been seeing the X, Y grid and calculus. So you have the X that goes down and Y that goes across. So you can, you know, cross reference these things and make a dot on there, Um, which calculus itself is credited to Isaac Newton. We've talked about this before. Like none of these things originate with these guys. Okay, oh, yes. you go, no way. right? So they're like, we credit calculus to Isaac Newton, you know, but like, what did we say before? Isaac Newton, self-credited physicist, like, that's Oh my all- God,
2: right, <laughs> yeah, he's like, because it's with all this stuff, it's like, it's not like he's alone in a room, like, he has students, Right. Yeah. He probably has fucking concubines, he has yeah. people around, he has servants, I don't know, I mean. Did he have like literal slaves? I don't know. But he was doing everything on his own. So it's like, I don't buy
1: it, you know? Right. I don't either. And also, like, it just doesn't make any sense because it's like, how do you build um, a pyramid without like calculus? Like, I don't really care what you call it or if you have an XY grid or whatever. You're going to need that tech. You're going to need that technology to to build those things. So like what like you know, I don't know, Isaac Newton came along he's like, I believe I'll call this that and then I will own it and I will have discovered something, right. <laughs> you know. Right. But um I can't believe
2: there's a fucking American flag on the moon. Like that is
1: so impressive. <laughs> Leave her out of it.
2: Uh, Leave her uh, yeah.
1: God, she's like, oh my God, wait, too many, too many terrible things just went through my mind. I'm not going to say them. Um, So, so, um, what Rene Descartes wanted to do is, uh, (laughs) this is so funny to me, but what he wanted to do was to uh, create a science that would solve all questions regarding quantity. He was just, like, going to handle that. If it had anything to do with quantity, Rene Descartes was just going to handle it. Like, he was just going to create a science, you know, that just dealt with that. Because his big thing is that he wanted to take everything out of a qualitative, meaning, you know, like, what the quality of something was and measure it according to quantity, according to weight and number, and so on and so forth. Uh, This very specific type of categorization that now is all we do. That's all we do. Our jobs are quantified in every conceivable way. Our, everything we do according to number and category and various types of polarization, rather than according to quality, to sense of feel, sense of identity, um, and go on there. But Descartes was big into saying that this is, this is what we need to do. We need to polarize the world into these categorizations. Um, which folks like you and myself and many are probably people listening to us we're very we're harmed by this by how because these are these are cuts in our cohesiveness these are captures within our coherent understanding of life and ourselves that goes a little deep but I'll just leave that there okay so so, But here's another thing that Descartes did. So despite all of this, he's practicing magic, okay, because they all are. And so he also created, <laughs> this is crazy to me, but because Descartes is the I think, therefore I am that, right? And we all look back at him as being like this really reasonable person. Like he was, you know, like the father of reason even, right? <laughs> so like he wasn't practicing magic. Um, But he also, but something he did, was he created a wheel of images that could be spun in the technique known as lulling. I mean, what? Excuse me? You're lulling?
2: Yeah, I'm
1: confused. What? Yeah, right? So he created these images, and you're going to spin this wheel, and I'm going to look at it until I'm lulled? Uh, pardon me? I thought you were burning bitches for that shit. <laughs> oh, Okay. Um, So this practice falls in alignment with the art of memory and work considered to be part of magical practices. The lulling wheel is intended to grasp the universal and be used for deducing the basis of science. So I don't really understand how exactly they were using this lulling wheel, but they certainly put a lot of stock into essentially spinning a wheel and looking at it until they were high, like, it's like kids, (laughs) you know, they probably were doing a lot of drugs, but it's like, you know, like teenagers, like crossing their eyes and like, whatever, doing weird things so that they can see weird pictures when they open their eyes or whatever, you know, I think all kids like do stuff like that. But that's what this reminds me of. Like, I just think that this is very bizarre behavior for people that we consider to be the fathers of our Sound reason and science. It's very bizarre to me. So magic or divinity or a natural cosmology are the basis of everything we do to this day. Math, science, architecture, agriculture. That's the point. That's the point. Mm -hmm. These are the things that these guys who invented, quote unquote, calculus, And quantifying everything, you know, all the physicists. I mean, Isaac Newton, the apple fell, and now we know everything. I mean, I kind of feel like people understood gravity just fine, probably before Isaac Newton, you know what I mean? Like, (laughs) (laughs) I thought that everything floated. Right. Thank God you were here, Isaac. Um. (laughs) right. I mean, it's just kind of dumb. So the witch hunts were not born out of a fear of witchcraft, but a fear of witchcraft was born out of a class war within the magical community. So let's... Um, I something, wow. Right? I mean, this is... It's pretty intense. I mean, honestly. So... Uh, There seems to be, like, we kind of understand the witch trials as being something like, well, people were benighted, right, because we were waiting on the enlightenment to come save us from things. Women were never allowed to do anything, so women were especially dumb, you know, right, because they weren't allowed to do anything. Um, So we have this basic belief that the general population, including doctors and judges, were ignorant enough to believe in magic, believe in witchcraft, to enough of a degree um that it created this, that it created the witch hunts, that this was born, that the witch hunts were born out of um a benighted belief system that there was nothing that anyone could do about it. No one had specifically generated it. Nobody had. It's just how people were back then, and it's just not the truth, Right. Um, so this mm-hmm. is from Erica Lagalice, and um, she says, The witch hunt, as a phenomenon of, quote-unquote, primitive accumulation, just as land, air, and water must first be enclosed as, quote-unquote, resources before the capitalists may profit from the commodities they are then used to produce, so were women enclosed as reduced to mere bodies by way of the witch hunt. The persecution of, quote-unquote, magic among, quote-unquote, witches throughout the peasantry was, in fact, a disciplinary measure directed specifically at poor women insofar as it served to enforce the logic of private property, wage work, and the transformation of women into reproducers of labor. Whereas a common popular misconception of the witch hunts is that they were instigated by peasant men who had not yet discovered, quote-unquote, rationality. They were, in fact, specifically organized by the church and modernizing Europe's European state, wherein many decades of propagandizing were necessary before reliable complicity among peasant men was achieved. Like, I—right? right I would template that with what we've just watched in this country, where in America,
2: right?
1: Where in the nineteen nineties, you had Rush Limbaugh talking for you know four hours a day, and like thirty years later, here we are. You know, right? It took that much propaganda. I mean, you know, and it goes back further than that, but it took a lot of propaganda to get us to where we are right now. And the same thing happens. With the witch hunts, like these men had to be convinced that the women that they lived with, worked with, got medicine from, you know, that the the women, the peasant women were the problem. They had to be convinced of that. They didn't start thinking that. It's crazy, right? Um, I mean, it's, it's it's too crazy. There isn't a word for how terrible this is. <laughs> just think right. about,
2: like, you know, all the serial killer or, like, me- what I mean now, it's mass shooter.
1: Yeah, right. Who, like,
2: most of them, like, fucking hate women and, like, how did you get like this? And it's just, like, yeah. this online – I mean, we know how – there's a lot of evidence as to how people get like that, and a lot of it is, like, propaganda. Online Mm -hmm. propaganda, radicalization to this extreme, uh, you know, cutting people off. It's like, it's just kind of like cycle where it's like, we're going to cut you off from from the real world by giving you like Mm -hmm. a community where you feel accepted. And then the community is going to continue to further isolate you from the real world. Like, mm-hmm. and then you get to a point where it's just, like, you are so cut off from the real real world. You don't even know what a fucking girl is anymore. You only know about yeah. this, like, completely made-up concept of, like, what a girl or a woman or femininity or feminism is. Like, it's literally a concept. What? Wow. A dialectic or whatever. Like, ah, I um, was just going to say that. Oh, my yes. God. It becomes, like, a concept of a woman and then you get to a point where you're just like mass murdering people because you're so cut off from reality you know the witch hunts were horrific all these mass shootings that happen all the time mm-hmm. are horrific you know yep. and it's not you know it the the root of it is this like dialectic version of masculinity that's not real you know it, and like yes, any threat saying. to this like white masculinity, and they're threatened by other white people too. If they're not their version of like white masculinity, it's like, mm-hmm. you know, the oh, god. It really fucking sucks, dude. <laughs> it really it's does. You just think about how this campaign. I mean, they talk about like Monroe versus Wade got overturned, they were like, this has been something they've been working on since over the way it happened. And now yeah. I'm like, actually, this has maybe been happening since like the
1: 1300s. Yeah. I mean, more, sp- absolutely. I mean, I 100% agree with that. This has been going on this whole time. I mean, you know, like the whole, the whole fascist project has been going on for a long time, you know? And we've seen that too. These Nazis, they go way back, you know, Nazis predate Nazis technically, you know? Right. So like, I don't know. Yeah, it goes way back. (laughs) Um, Yeah, so they're murdering, murdering midwives to take control of medicine and make it make these for profit systems. It's a it's a class war. And then eventually, you know, what they're doing is not only are they taking medicine away from the people and out of the people's communities and putting it behind these, you know, these these walls to where you have to like, you know, you have to pass through their gates to get even to get them the medicine. But what they turn around and start doing to bodies, um, that have wombs and vaginas is like, it is crazy. They start doing the most insane, um, works of like torment and works of, um, I mean, disfiguration and just like some really, I mean, pretty amazingly bad things. I mean, honestly, apparently, I've never had a baby, so I don't know. But apparently, one of the worst ways that you can go about having a baby is to lie down on your back. And that's what they have you do, you know? So, I don't know. You got to talk to midwives about these things. Isn't that crazy? And it's like, it's not like they don't know that. I mean, it's not like that they don't know sense. that.
2: Even you saying that, I'm like, wow, yeah, that makes a lot of sense,
1: right? So um, let's see. So um, this is and like and we don't have much more to do today. So so we're we're almost through this, but I we want to talk a little bit about the Freemasonic Society because this is this does come up. And the Freemasons were decidedly anti-clerical, yet they espoused a pantheism that infused its social leveling project with sacred purpose. So here's what all that means: the Freemasons were they were essentially against bureaucracy. Right. They didn't like bureaucracy of the state. Hell um, yeah. I'm hell yeah. I mean, the early Freemasons had some things going on that were that were pretty cool. Um, and, they, and they never have, heard
2: it described that way, I guess.
1: Right. I hadn't either. I mean, this is like fairly new to me, but I've heard it in a few places since. I've read this, maybe just because like yeah. that selective hearing thing, but um,
2: oh, I, th- I yeah, think yeah.
1: Subliminal Jihad did something where they were talking about this too, which is a really good oh, podcast cool. for anybody out there. Um, the Freemasonic Society, okay, so they were anti-clerical, which they were anti-bureaucracy, anti-state really, and they espoused a pantheism. So they had a cosmology, but it was not monotheistic. Um, And social leveling, which I hear that and I'm like, excuse me, like, I don't like how that sounds, but it actually was they were talking about equality. They were talking about equity. And so they actually were looking to have um, a more equitable society. Um, But keep in mind now, all of that having been said, that, you know, Jews, women and laborers were not allowed so like you're still like right. So these are a bunch of like wealthy like white like Protestants like or whatever getting oh, not men.
2: Protestants.
1: <laughs> whatever. I, maybe I shouldn't say that, but like something like they weren't Jewish. That's all. I'm, that's all I know, right? Because the Jewish people weren't allowed. So you have, you know, so you kind of have the same power. It's the same group of power that's still in power. You know right. So apparently, this social leveling project didn't work very well. But I don't know. But who they were trying to? I mean, even laborers in the beginning. So you have they were classist, they were sexist, and they were anti-Semitic. Just (laughs) goddamn Freemasons. I know, but they were all hanging out like
2: anti-bureaucracy and not fucking anti-Semitic. Also,
1: I know. So here's these guys sitting around like how do we make the world more equal when their whole club is based on inequality? Oh my God. <laughs> I
2: know. Um,
1: right. Cause, and they would also like one of their topics was um, the workers question. You know, so anytime you have, you know, it's like it's like a bunch of men sitting there in a room if they said like the women question. Like the woman question. Oh. Be like, what are y'all talking about in there? <laughs>
2: exactly. I'm like, Excuse no, me. You need a babysitter. <laughs> All right. You need a moderator.
1: You, can, can you cannot be in here alone. Yeah. No. So, um, so, but that having been said, um, for the time period, they were um, pretty like forward thinking in this, and that that was the Freemasons. So then, this is the late like seventeen hundreds, so um, or mid, I guess mid seventeen hundreds. So by the late seventeen hundreds, proletarian workers were allowed. So it was white men that were from the lower classes did eventually become allowed into into the Freemasons. So I'm going to read out of La Galise here. I'll just read. Um, I'm going to read a little bit. I'm just going to read a little bit from here. So here we arrive at the question of, com- of conspiratorial revolutionary brotherhoods, which would be the Freemasons. Um, That has been exploited in paranoid intrigue. On one hand, due to the utopian rhetoric developed in the Masonic public sphere, some members became directly involved in revolutionary activities, both in France before the revolution, as well as throughout Europe in the years immediately following. On the other hand, it is true that many revolutionaries who were not necessarily Masons made use of the Lodges' existing infrastructure and social networks to further their cause. Yet others simply adopted Masonic iconography and organizational style, which had accrued a measure of symbolic power and legitimacy in developing their own revolutionary associations. It is not possible, in retrospect, to distinguish entirely between these phenomena, the salient point being that the revolutionary brotherhoods that proliferated at the turn of the 19th century derived much of their power from their association with perennial secrets and magical power, and their related style of social organization were fundamental to the development of what we have come to recognize as modern revolutionism." Adam Weishaupt, a young Bavarian professor who founded the Illuminati in 1776. That's so weird, isn't it? The Illuminati was born the same year as America. America's the Illuminati. (laughs) That seems so true. Um, Was one of few convinced egalitarians of his day. His revolutionary agenda involved the complete dismantling of the state, the church, and the institution of private property, all justified by a revamped Christian millenarianism, which is like a belief that Jesus is coming back, affected by readings of Jean-Jacques Rousseau and the Ellusian Mysteries and organizationally inspired by the secret association of Pythagoreans, which we talked about before, roving bands of mathematicians. Um, According to YFAP, our true fall from grace was our submission to the rule of government. Oh,
2: Let
1: me this is from him. This is something Wise Hop said. Let us take liberty and equality as the great aim of Christ's doctrines and morality as the way to attain it. And everything in the New Testament will be comprehensible. Man has fallen from the condition of liberty and equality, the state of pre nature. He is under subordination and civil bondage, arising from the vices of man. This is the fall, the original sin. The kingdom of grace is that restoration which may be brought about by illumination. So that's what's going on in these early in these early um, Freemasonic situations but what starts to happen about 1800, turn of the century um, there's revolutionary societies across Europe and some of them are Freemasons some of them aren't, some of them are Illuminati, some of them aren't um, it's really an international network of revolutionary movements that's so happening at this time and what they need, what they don't have is venues so they they <laughs> So, um, what they don't have are these venues, and so they need you know the masons they're stone layers, right that's where they get their names right so they have they have they have venues, which you know, like back in this is a long time ago, there weren't as <laughs> many you know buildings right there wasn't just like you needed you needed a venue to meet, you needed places to meet. Um, so what winds up happening, and I'm going to throw in a couple of names here that just are not really that important. I mean, you can look them up if you want, but they're just kind of, I'm going to read from Erica Lagalise, and there's just names in here, but they're not really important to what we're saying. So, Varanadi had a low opinion of established Freemasonry, but nevertheless admitted only masons into his brotherhood for the express purpose of using established lodges as a nursery for revolutionary ideas, in a Christian language, every candidate for supreme command of the sublime perfect masters, which is the Illuminati, had to infiltrate a Masonic lodge and rise through its hierarchy to a key position, successfully altering the structure of lodges in Tuscany, Piedmont, and Lombardy by adding a third grade that dovetailed the lodge's hierarchy with their own. So, these original Masonic lodges started to be infiltrated, essentially, and people were rising through the ranks and and um, and kind of taking over the lodges, which is where I think things, you know, kind of kind of take this shift. Anyway, venue politics—I find it very interesting.
2: It's so funny.
1: I know, right?
2: Like we never get away from it.
1: You can never get away from it, like needing these spaces. So here, this is also from Lagalese. Uh, Weishaupt had joined a Masonic lodge in 1774, but had left shortly after, not satisfied with the level of critique he found therein. A year after founding his more radical group, however, that's the Illuminati, the members together decided in 1777 to join lodges once more in order to find new recruits. And the strategy worked. The Illuminati grew from Weishaupt and five students in 1776 to 54 members in five Bavarian cities by 1779 and eventually extended to Italy, Lyon, and Strasbourg to include figures such as Goethe, Schiller, Mozart, and Herder. The pyramid structure of the network, modeled on Masonic form, was organized into three grades. The Minervale, the Minervale Illumina- Illuminato, and the Inner Circle of the aeropagite I don't know that word, and both became an agency for the transmission of commonplace enlightenment ideas and a quasi-religious sect in which men met to contemplate the utopian regeneration of society. Its growth was short-lived, and in 1783, a Minerville Illuminato left the order, uh, discontented, and shared its radical ideas with his employer, okay? A Duchess wow. of Bavarian wow. <laughs> royal family, <a> wow. narg, <laughs> ensuring suspicions that the Illuminati were connected with an Austrian plot to annex the electorate. And perhaps worse, alarmed the government and a repressive campaign began. So these are all the, these are, these are, this is, this is how it started. This Illuminati stuff and with these lodges and, and all of these things going on. I mean, it's just interesting to me here too, knowing that there's just this whole, that ha- all of this stuff is actually already appropriated. Like, everything we're talking about here is, mm-hmm. are, is pre-appropriated. Like, we're, every revolutionary concept here is is appropriated. And I don't even know why they did it. Like, I don't even understand it. Just to be like, it seems like it would have been more beneficial to be like, hey... We met all these people who lived the way that probably our own ancestors lived, and that was taken from us, and we should get that shit back. Like, I don't even understand what the point of being like, I have, like, all these new ideas, and I've just now thought of this. I don't, I don't even understand it. It seems so much less powerful than what but I said a minute like ago.
2: The human ego, like, there's just certain types yeah. of... Oh. Homo sapiens that are just really awful and are really <laughs> concerned like it. No, but I I mean that. And we talked about yeah. that on other episodes, I think, where like like there were other types of like homos. Like there was Homo sapiens and then Homo the fucking other shit of like Neanderthals. And right. like the Homo sapiens just like theoretically the Homo sapiens just killed everybody else. So it's like that's really honestly where we come from and that's like a bummer to think about. I think at this point, we're probably, like, obviously there's pockets of us that, like, don't want to just kill everybody else. But there's just still the remnants, I feel, like, of that prehistoric humanoid that just, like, or, like, you know, the early homo sapiens that just want to, like, kill everybody else because they think they need to to survive.
1: That's really a fascinating, that's a really fascinating concept too, because it does. I mean, it's certainly like, it does. I mean, my own kind of spirituality has always led me to like, try to see how I'm like everyone else, or I could be, you know, like, okay, this person did this really terrible thing. Can I find that in myself, you know, like to look for that, just that's always been part of the practice for me. And then there's just sometimes where I'm like, I don't know. I can't find that one. <laughs> like, yeah. like, I can't. I'm not sure what you're doing over there. That really does I seem mean, just not we were like talking me. About like
2: earlier in the episode, just about like how some people are just satisfied. Like, going with the flow of, I don't know, some people are just fucking weird and different, you know? Yeah, it's true. It it just sucks that, like, you know, there's this thing I heard about, like, a narcissist and, like, narcissistic-type people where, like, there's a group of 100 people, but, like, one narcissist in the group, like, the narcissist can derail the entire group of 100 people.
1: Oh, wow. Right.
2: So, you know... We so there's that out here dealing with a bunch of fucking, like you know the minority i feel of humans might still be enough to like fuck it up or definitely has been enough in the past to like fuck it up <sighs>
1: All right, so this is this is La also. So communist and anarchist symbolism such as the red star and the circle A date back to this period and also have Masonic origins. I actually love that. Um, the star which hosts an endless charge of esoteric meanings in both Hermetic and Pythagorean traditions had been adopted in the 18th century. Freemasons to symbolize the second degree of membership of their association, that of Comrade. Regarding the Circle A, early versions, like the 19th century logo of the Spanish locale of the IWA, are clearly composed of the compass, level, and plume line of the Masonic iconography the only innovation being that the compass and the level are arranged to form the letter a inside of a circle that's hilarious to me so um i kind of love that and also like iwa is international workers association and so eventually when the illuminati they start taking in working class white men um The Masonic lodges and the, including the Illuminati and the Freemasons, they actually become big proponents of, um, workers' rights and laborers' rights really across the world at some point in time. So, so also you have anarchism, communism, and any sorts of, like, workers, laborers, like unions and laborers, um, rights, workers' rights, groups, protesters, things, demonstrators, are all born essentially in these lodges. Which I find fascinating. So that's, that's crazy. Right? Oh, and I wanted to give one little I can't help it. We're gonna have to like slag on Marks a little bit just because you got to so um yeah, sorry folks. Sorry Marxists out there. We got to do it. We can't help it. Okay. We can't that's help it. Saying. We're anarchists. Yeah, that's, that's how we are. <laughs> <laughs> it's just in our blood. Okay. Um, so this is from, um, this is from Erica Logalish. This is her, her book and it says, um, uh, Bakunin, which is Mikhail Bakunin, who, um, was an anarchist who had a cosmology. And um, Bakunin's quarrel with Marx had much to do with elevating the revolutionary status of Slav peasants versus German proletarians, among other questions of social and historical context. While Bakunin wrote of the peasantry, they, this, is what, this is what Bakunin wrote, they love the land? Well, then let them take the land and throw out those landlords who live by the labor of others. Marx famously considered peasants capable of collective action only as much as "quote unquote" potatoes in a sack form a sack of potatoes, Um, or as Engels, his bestie, wrote. The Italians must still attend the school of experience a little more to learn that a backward nation of peasants such as they only make themselves ridiculous when they want to prescribe to the workers of nations with big industry how they must conduct themselves in order to arrive at emancipation. I mean, who are you working for, Frederick? You are
0: listening to Secret Antenna, a completely unfunded podcast that we do for free. We made a Patreon to help us buy books and equipment, and we post full-length bonus episodes on there, mostly about topics we get a little more wacky on. Access to all of our content starts at a dollar a month, and you can subscribe at patreon.com secretantenna
1: Well, in conclusion, I'm just going (laughs) to read you all the last few – it's a few paragraphs that end her book. (laughs) As discussed earlier in this work, the classical art of memory was largely absorbed into the science of nature, yet it also perseveres throughout the modern world in other applications. Patriotic statues bearing personified images of the nation – decorated with emblems and amid arches of imposing architecture, for example, are clearly designed to impress particular collective identities upon the memory. Both mainstream media conglomerates and creators of YouTube videos concerning great conspiracies of global power also make use of psychologically compelling visual techniques. Both include images that are wondrous, personify, and involve action are unfamiliar combinations, as per the classical mnemonic art, which may work insofar as it mobilizes important insights into the workings of human cognition. Perhaps we do well to end this essay with suggestive questions along precisely these lines. Indeed, it may be worth while exploring how one of the modern schools that contains and transcends the Renaissance arts of memory is Freudian psychoanalysis. The unity of heavens yields the unity of the self, and as metaphysics yields psychology. That's from Freud. Memory, as a key magic, was displaced by memory as a key to soul searching. Right? So that's in Freud. So we, we turned the use of magic to understand the world, we focused it in on ourselves. Like, no wonder we're so narcissistic and fucked up and sick, right? So for Freud, memories were largely personal affairs. His project rested upon a faith that we have the capacity to recover all forgotten experiences and thus make the record of human history whole. Meanwhile, it was Freud's nephew... You know who? Edward Bernays.
2: Oh, author, my God, double messer.
1: Yeah. Author of works such as Propaganda, 1928, and Engineering Consent, 1947. Okay, who played a key role in inventing the emotionally manipulative image based commercial advertisement as well as public relations as a field, broadly speaking. Indeed, the occult, occult ed, crafts discussed in these pages may equally inspire the psychological machinations of modern advertising and social media, as well as the fantasies of fashion, the apocalypse of the dialectic, and the anarchist faith in the egalitarian social world. We would be wise to not ignore their power, because now, as during the nineteenth century, as during the Renaissance period with which this essay began, The Hermetica proves adaptable to a variety of projects, including both pyramid and leveling schemes, as well as pyramid schemes for leveling, as above, so below. And that is the occult features of anarchism, folks. Yay!
2: Yay! We did it! We did it. I mean... Hopefully we uh, nothing got fucked up in recording. We'll
1: see. We'll see. We gotta have faith. We got Carl uh, Marx so He's gonna come in in the middle of the night and he's gonna change his name through the entire oh recording. <laughs>
2: <God>. <laughs> Carl Doug Marx.
1: He's gonna be sitting on my bed in the middle of the night. Like I heard what you said about me. <laughs> wow.
2: Hey, he's gonna
1: hate. <laughs> Oh, well, thank you so much, Callie. And um, this has been an awesome season two. I love season two and I'm so excited oh God, for yeah. season three. Yeah. The end of season
2: two. Okay. I guess. Yep. Um, yeah. It's been a great season. I started in the middle of the season, which has like affected this podcast on my end a lot. So I'm excited to hopefully have Ozone come on as a guest more to help us keep episodes coming out. And I know you have a lot of stuff that you're planning on. So we're still going to be having a ton of stuff, even if it's less. Me, more. You and other people, I'll still be involved, maybe more behind the scenes. they will still be here. We'll still I'll be here. Me
1: we're mm-hmm. gonna do
2: like hopefully a Clinton series that I definitely Ooh, yeah. am gonna be here for, and uh, yeah, I'm just excited to see where it goes. Season three. This is like our third. We're starting like year three. Yeah, because I guess yeah. the first podcast we probably did in like a yeah, I guess two and a half years. Yeah, yeah. And now we're starting season three, and
1: mm-hmm.
2: here we go. We're just
1: and here doing we go. It. I know. Yeah. Yes. All right. Yeah. Well sweet for everything, Michelle. Thanks for everything, Callie. Till next time. All
2: right. Thank you to our listeners also.
1: You Indeed. guys
2: are cool to listen to our podcast.
1: <laughs> Bye for now. All right.
2: Bye.